Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, and today episode focus on genocide studies. My name is Akir Englander, your host, and today we will focus on the book on inhumanity, dehumanization and how to resist it, published by Oxford University in 2020. The, Ru- the Rwandan genocide, the Holocaust, the lynching of African Americans, the colonial slave trade, These are horrific episodes of mass violence spawned from racism and hatred. We like to think that we could never see such evils again, that we would stand up and fight. But something deep in the human psyche, deeper than prejudice itself, leads people to prosecute the other, dehumanization, or the human propensity to think of others as less than human. In his book, Professor Levingston Smith invites all of us to a journey. Each of the 26 short chapters deal with one aspect of dehumanization and challenge us, the readers, to investigate inside ourselves what dehumanization is. Where are the elements that we too carry inside us? What are the ways we should deal with racism? How dehumanization helps soldiers in combat? And what is the price they pay in order to keep the image of humanity in their enemy? How the virtual world challenges our behavior towards dehumanization and many more. David Livingstone Smith is professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Bedford, Maine. He has written and edited eight books, including Lesson Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. His work has been translated into seven languages. So welcome, David. Um, Can you please share with us a little bit about your spiritual and religious background, and also what have made you to dedicate yourself to this subject? Well, I was born in in New York City of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And my father was was very religious. He came from a missionary family. In fact, he was born in Brazil of missionaries. My mother was not. Um, When I was very young, we moved down south. And of course, uh, in the deep south in the United States, particularly in that era, but still now, it's heavily, heavily, heavily Christian. Um, my family didn't try to get me to believe anything. Um, so, you know, I would go to church sometimes. Eventually, my grandparents moved down. They were both Jewish refugees from, from Eastern Europe. They moved down from New York with us. And they were they were non-observant. They were my grandmother was certainly an atheist. My grandfather, I'm not exactly sure, 
but uh, certainly he didn't follow any particular religious doctrines. And uh, after experimenting, I became an atheist. So that is that is my attitude towards towards religion. I, I I don't believe in God in any description, but I don't think that exhausts the notion of one's spiritual life. Uh, to me, um, if we're going to use words like spiritual life, I guess what matters is truth and justice. I I seek the truth, and I would like to leave the world a better place, a little bit better than how I found it. And what have made you to decide as a, to dedicate yourself to the questions about ethics and humanity? Okay, well, there, there are two sides to that. One is a more personal side, and the other is a more academic side. So I'll start with the autobiographical side first. So, so as I mentioned, my family moved to the Deep South. I, I don't think I said from where. It's from New York City. Um, when I was very small, when I was three years old. And I then grew up in that environment and was surrounded by brutal racial oppression. Mm -hmm. This was, you know, the Jim Crow era. Everything was segregated. Black people were horribly oppressed. And practically everyone around me, apart from my family, was an explicit racist. So it was no subtle, you know, you didn't have to work it out. People, people said it. And because I wasn't brought up in that environment and my family, particularly on my mother's side, um, didn't hold anything remotely like those views. It was very puzzling to me. And, you know, a child that hasn't grown up in that environment, you feel there's something terribly wrong here. So that left a big impression. Now, when my grandparents moved down, uh, this was very important in, in this trajectory. Um, my grandparents both um, did not have the opportunity to be educated. My, my grandfather worked in a Coca-Cola cola bottling plant. He came to this country when he was just a tiny baby from Belarus. So my, they arrived before the Holocaust. Yes, before the Holocaust, yes, mm -hmm. 1906. So my grandfather arrived in 1906, my grandmother in 1910 from Romania. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my grandmother, even you know, less than my grandfather, she had to quit school in her early teens to work in a, a sweatshop in New York. But they were both brilliant, self-educated people. You know, that was a generation of the, the working class intellectual. And my grandmother in particular, amongst her many interests, was um, genocide, oppression, racism. So she taught me a great deal about antisemitism, about the uh, genocide of Native Americans and the oppression of, of black people in the United States. So she really helped me make sense of the world around me. Um, I think she's the, the main intellectual influence on my life. So I kind of took that with me, and it was always there in the backgrounds. But for a long time as an academic, I didn't do anything with it. Um, in 2007, my book on war and human nature came out. And when I was writing, when I was researching that, 
I came across all of this dehumanizing propaganda, wartime propaganda, representing the enemy as, you know, as vicious predators or, or animals to hunt for sport, so on and so forth. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really interesting. Uh, and then I, I discovered that people in my own field, I'm a philosopher, really weren't investigating this. It was all psychologists. And a friend convinced me, actually. He said, David, you must write a book on this because everyone will have to cite you. <laughs> so I wrote this book, which came out in 2011, called Less Than Human, which was my first attempt to, to, well, to do several things. One is to pull all the information I could together because there wasn't any single authored book on this subject in the English language. There, there was just nothing. So I went through many different literatures, mostly history, but psychology and anthropology and political science, to find those little pieces and put them together and try to, to give both a sort of a history of dehumanization and its role in human life, and also an explanation of because it's a very puzzling phenomenon. It's very puzzling how uh, one human being could look at another and think that other is not really a human being at all. They're subhuman creature or a monster or a demon. Like, how does that work? So I tried to theorize that. Now, that was in 2011. In the intervening decade, um, I rethought a lot of what I did. Then I revised my views to some extent. And also I, I became increasingly alarmed by the state of the world, by the rise of authoritarian regimes in the United States, in Brazil, in Poland, in Hungary. Um, and I, the, the topic became even more urgent to me. So, I decided, actually, I, <laughs> the real story is I, I, I got a contract with Harvard University Press to write a more academic book. But then Oxford came to me and said, we'd love you to write a book on this. And I said, well, only if it's a book for the general public. Which is such a gift. David, it's such a gift. One of the gifts that your book brings is that everyone can understand it. That's the, the, the clarity, the clarity, yes. Because these issues are far too important, you know, for exactly. a book that 12 academics read. Yes. I want, to, I want to reach everyone. That's why I wrote it in the accessible way as I could without sacrificing content. And with 26 short chapters, so you can just pick it up and in half an hour read a chapter and put it down and pick it up again. So, so that's how, how the book came about. It was, so I put the Harvard book on the back burner. I did this one. Now the Harvard book will be the next one. It's already with the publisher. So we are going to meet again, which is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so David, so let's, let's try to lead us into this incredible um, book. And, and seriously, thank you for mentioning. I think that one of the beauties of the book is that in different times of the day, I, put, I, I read different chapters. And I could also, because it's short and it's so clear, 
I could sleep on that, you know, I could feel it and, and, and walk with that. So one of the questions that you are touching and um, and another thing that you, I think you do it in a brilliant way that in each chapter, it starts in a way with a question, in a way. You bring a question and you ask us, so why it's happened? And what I try to do is not to continue to read, but to wait a little bit, to try to find my answer. And then after that, yes, right, it's such a it's such a brilliant way uh, to write a book. It's like a real dialogue. I felt that I'm what we call in Hebrew, you are my chavruta, you're learning with me. So, so David, can you lead us? Because one of your claims is that many times when we think about dehumanization, we have assumptions. And because we have these assumptions, we make some mistakes. So can you lead us with some of the assumptions that many of us we have about dehumanizing, um, dehumanization, about racism? And then what's the questions that we need to ask ourselves? Okay, so here, here's how I, I think I need to get at this. So dehumanization is a popular word. Uh, Google it, you get over 8 million hits, I believe. Uh, but when you look closely, people mean very different things by that word. It sort of casts more heat than light. So everyone, when they talk about dehumanization, a bad thing, right? But the, but the problem is it's, it's used in so many different ways that it's very easy for people to talk past each other. And that's a tragedy because dehumanization is associated with the very worst atrocities that human beings perpetrate. So it's something that's very, very important to understand. And so anyone who wishes to investigate this needs to be very clear what they mean by the word. It's not like there's a right meaning and a wrong meaning. It's just that there are many different meanings uh, to this word. Um, and so what I try to do is, is both be very, very explicit about what I mean and explain a bit about why I choose that sense of dehumanization. So and this is the very good way to start, of course, because unless I explain what I mean, everything else I say won't make sense, right? So um, <laughs> what I mean by dehumanization is thinking of others as subhuman creatures, conceiving them as subhuman creatures. Um, now, so if that's looked at in that sort of way, dehumanization is a psychological phenomenon. It takes place in our heads. It's not the same as bad treatment, although if you think of others as subhuman, you're likely to treat them badly. And if it's not the same, uh, it's not a rhetorical thing. So if you think of others in that sort of way, of course, you're likely to describe them as 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 vermin or demons or monsters, uh, but that's like a symptom of the thought process. Um, so, in that way, I distinguish my view from the views of many other people who are either less precise or choose one of these others. Say, dehumanization is cruel and degrading treatment, or dehumanization is using slurs like vermin. Um, now, when I say that humanization is a psychological phenomenon, something that happens in your head, that doesn't mean that the world outside of your head is unimportant. So the 
fuller account is dehumanization is a psychological response to political forces. So I don't think dehumanization arises spontaneously from within us. Um, and this is one of my criticism of a lot of the psychological literature. They, you know, they say, well, the world out there is important, but they only speak about what happens in people's heads. I think dehumanization arises when propagandists play on our psychological vulnerabilities. When, 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 when they get us to think of others, some group of others, as, as less than human, and, and very often as not only less than human, but dangerous, dangerous creatures. So, you know, my, my two um, main examples in the book, and as you know, there are many, many other examples, uh, but my two main examples are, are the Holocaust and the oppression of African-Americans in this country. We find the same pattern of thinking in, in both cases. So in both cases, what is interesting, the, the place of race, yeah. right? right? Um, and, and there are a few claims that you claim during the book, if I understood it well. And one of them is that many times when we think about race, there is an assumption about the biological place. Yeah. And what you show us in the book is that it's much more complicated that it's, it's complicated in two different ways, at least. One is that many times it's the same race. And then in a way, what they're doing like with the Jewish people is to speak about the soul, like the race of the soul in a way, right? Yes, like, yes exactly. And, and, and you bring such a brilliant quotation uh, from one of the Nazis who says that each one of the SS will come back to me and will tell me, yes, but my friend, the Jewish friend, he is unique, he is different. And, and right, because they don't really see the difference. And then he tried to say like, no, you don't understand. There is a gap in the race. And yeah. from the others, and I would love you if you can say more, and the other side that you bring is that even the terms, the biological in a way, the way how we think about race has political significance and political yeah. Can you say more? Can you elaborate? Sure. sure. I mean, it's such, I'm, I'm so happy you asked this early on because it's so important. So the example that you gave, that was Himmler speaking to SS officers. Uh, it's, 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 it's his speech that we actually have a recording of. And, you know, he's talking about how uh, to commit these atrocities, you have to really have a sense of, of moral duty. It's one of the paradoxes of, of genocide, that people who commit genocide always think they're saving the world from evil. That's what the Nazis thought. Um, so yeah, so I think the first point to make is that dehumanization is very closely tied to the idea of race. Now, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about uh, the fact that scholars who study race, almost all scholars who really study race, do not believe that race is a genuine biological thing. Race is a folk notion. Um, but so, so it doesn't have biological justification. Now, all right, so we can go to there and we, we can say, well, 
what is this? <laughs> you know, yeah. how how does the concept of race? How do we do race? As yes, the, the title of one of the chapters, which, by the way, I took from one of my students who asked me that question. Um, well, one of the the important things when we're trying to understand this notion of race and and the powerful grip it has on the human imagination is we need to get away from purely what I call purely local conceptions of race. So in the United States at this time, it was different in the past, race is very closely tied to skin color. So much that they used interchangeably, you know. Martin Luther King in his famous speech, he said, he talks about the content of a person's character versus the color of their skin. And by that he meant race. But that's because of the peculiar history of the United States. Um, now, let's go to Nazi Germany or, you know, much of Europe before that period, but I guess Nazi Germany is the paradigm. There is no doubt that Nazis thought of Jews as a race. They didn't care one bit about practicing the Jewish religion. It didn't matter. It, they had a genealogical conception. So, you know, how you were classified depended on how many of your grandparents were Jews. Now, of course, <laughs> it's a repeating problem because how do you determine that the grandparents are Jews? Well, you have to look at their grandparents. So, so they, the way they put it, were there that, you know, I had to stop someplace. So members of the Jewish congregation. So how many of the grandparents were religious Jews. Uh, and that Jewishness was supposed to be transmitted biologically by descent. But this is not scientific biology, right? This is folk biology. This is fantasy. So in that case, in the case of Nazi Germany, either a full Jew or a Mischling, a, a mixed race person like myself, I would be considered a first degree Mischling, um, there wasn't a difference in skin color. And in fact, there wasn't a reliable difference in appearance. This drove the Nazis crazy. Uh, there are plenty of Jews who were blue-eyed, and when I had hair, it was blonde, blonde-haired, and you know, six feet four tall, not, not fitting the stereotype that was put around. Uh, and that's why, of course, they had to make Jews wear yellow stars. I mean, they couldn't tell by looking at them. Right, so they had to get their pedigrees and you know put a label on Jews. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us there's much something much deeper in the concept of race than most people assume. So, what is that? Because look, we want if we want to understand the, how race works in human societies, what we want are something is is an analysis that covers all the examples. So what I argue in the book is that the idea of race has three components. The first is that there are groups of people who are fundamentally different from us. When I say fundamentally, I mean fundamentally, basically, and unchangeably, right? So your membership in one of these groups, which turn out to be races, um, are, is unchangeable. It's a life sentence. You're born in it and you die in it. Second, they, whoever they are, 
are an inferior kind of human being. So there's a notion of hierarchy built into this. And the reason for that is if we look historically at how people are racialized, how they come to be regarded as races, um, it, the, the, this comes out of relations of domination. So one group of people wishes to oppress another or at the extreme exterminate another. And regarding this other group of people as fundamentally different and inferior legitimates that, that move. The third, which is related to the first, is that race is transmitted by descent. It's handed from parents to offspring. So you are the race of your parents. And if they're of classified as different races, well, it depends on the customs of the, the culture involved. So in the United States, we had the one drop rule. If any ancestors were black, a person was black. When uh, the Nazis sent lawyers over here to study our race laws, they thought that was too extreme. And that tells us, I mean, the Nazis thought the Americans were, were too racist. And that's how they developed this formula with the grandparents, right? So it wasn't that you were a Jew if you had any Jewish ancestors. You had to have a sufficient number of Jewish ancestors. Whereas yeah. for the Americans, one black ancestor way back was enough to, to, to racially taint you. So... I describe in, in the book, I say dehumanization is racism on steroids. And what I mean by that is it goes beyond ordinary racism because, see, ordinary racism is, is regarding some others as inferior or defective human beings. They're stupid. They don't feel pain. They're lazy. They're, they're essentially criminal. That's a very popular one, by the way. Um, and so on. But they're, they're still human beings. They're just third-rate human beings. Dehumanization takes that further. It, it, it expels them from the category of the human altogether. And therefore, it licenses um, much more uh, brutal treatment of them. Yes. Um, I would quote from one of the places in, in your book, in page 26, and, and I will from the SS, and they, they, the quotation is, although it has features <clears throat> similar to a human, the subhuman is lower on the spiritual and psychological scale than any animal. Not all of those who appear human are in fact so. Owe to him that forget it. Yeah. So that's from this little, this booklet, which was translated into, I believe, 11 European languages called Der Untermensch, you know, the subhuman. It was primarily about Jews who are described as the king of the subhumans, but it was applied to all of those whom Nazis regarded as, as yes. subhuman races. Yeah. So my question to you is, where, as a philosopher, where's, um, where is the line between speaking about um, fundamental language in our culture, where is the line between it's okay to speak like that and when it's become not okay, when it's kosher, when it's not kosher? And I want, um, I want to give you an example that was walking with me. So I'm thinking about, as you mentioned, the Nazis and the Jews. 
that from the moment that one of your grandparents, they are Jewish, mm. so you are Jewish enough to be Jewish. And from the other side, we know that in the Jewish religion, at least in some interpretation, um, you are Jewish not by believing in something, but you're Jewish if your mother yes. is Jewish, um, if you the the law of um, the law in Israel today about who is Jewish in order to get Israeli citizen is also by the grandparents. So I wonder if you can help us, the listeners, when we grow up with some of these assumptions, when it's kosher and when you tell us, hey, let's be careful here. Yes. So, so um, I think that race is a fantasy. Uh, and I think it's a toxic and destructive fantasy in any form. And insofar as Jews regard themselves as, uh, as, a, as a race that is a separate kind of human being, I think that's dangerous and it's toxic. Um, now, that's different from appreciating one's cultural heritage and the historical trajectory of my of, I, that was an interesting slip back. I said my, of, of one's ancestors. You know, one, one of, I realized after I wrote the book that um, one of, part of the significance of that book for me was as an homage to my grandparents and, you know, the oppression they suffered and the oppression their, their parents suffered that, you know, that drove them to the United States to escape the pogroms. Right. That's not racial. So in a sense, I don't believe in Jews. I don't believe in Jews if a Jew is to be a member of a race and if Jewishness is somehow magically handed down biologically from, from mothers to, to offspring. Um, now, I was told once, and I'm not sure of the truth of this, that there's an historical explanation for that, uh, which had to do with Jewish women being raped uh, in, in pogroms. Right, so to to maintain Jews as a people, that was a very clever rule <laughs> to put in place. I don't know if that's true, um, uh, but it certainly became more than that, and it became more than that uh, long before the the Nazis racialized Jews. Right, right. I mean, Hannah Arendt in the, um, I believe it's the introduction to the origins of totalitarianism discusses that. Right. So my next question is a question about um, education and the question about um, how we need to deal with um, generate between generations. So my question is like that. One of the things that I, I and you mentioned it now in the dialogue and, and you write um, in the book is a, is the power of the narrative that is around us, a political narrative that mm -hmm. we, we are born and we raise with, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you start your book with what you share with us a little bit about like even where you grow up and what does it mean to grow up in the South and then what's happened when Jewish grandparents coming to the South, right? It's such mm -hmm. an incredible um, um, description. But then I'm thinking, and, and since education, since education is so so deeply there in creating dehumanization. I'm thinking about how, in a way, we can heal that. 
Mm. And, and I'm thinking about that our days. Um, one of the struggles, and again, I'm not an American, but one of, I'm living now in America, and one of the struggles that I see around me, and we definitely have it the same in Jerusalem, um, in my peace work for many years, is hmm. what we can ask our parents and grandparents to change, and where is the place that we need to stay with their knowledge and the way how they grow up in that time, they did pretty well job. However, since I am now in a in a way better narrative or easier narrative to see the complication of the politics, I need to do the next step. But I also cannot blame them constantly all the time. There is something here between generation that um, I was dealing a lot in my peace work as a peace activist in Jerusalem. And, and maybe I will give you, you, you know, you shared, I, I would like to share with you a short story. Um, so in after the military, I um, decided to dedicate myself. I was in the unit of identify the dead bodies of the conflict. Hmm. And I saw a lot of um, the results of the conflict. And I dedicate myself to 14 years of peace or, um, hmm. work. But one of the questions that I was asked is, what, can you ask your father, as an example, um, to join your peace work? Hmm. And it took me a lot of time to understand that in a way, yes and no. Yes, for sure. But also no, because for my father, who was a child at the Holocaust, then came after the Holocaust with all the post-trauma of a child. Yeah. Coming to Israel, to a country that was just established, and had to fought to fought in five wars hmm. to ask him in a way to trust the enemy, and I do not quotation because enemy is a political term, hmm. is in a way too much to ask for. But for me, who I had the luck not to be born at the Holocaust, but to be born in a beautiful Israel, yeah. yes, I carry my trauma from my military and from different wars, but it's a different trauma. Exactly. It's a different trauma. And I think that one of the things that was walking with me, with your book, is that because you show the politicization of dehumanization, you also, in a way, give us tools how to heal. And I wonder mm. if you can walk with us. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing, um, I guess is I have to say I'm not terribly optimistic <laughs> about the future. That came out in the first yes. chapter when I repeated that Jewish joke at the end of the first chapter. Um, but uh, I am hopeful. Hopefulness and optimism I, I see as different, different things. Uh, if I wasn't hopeful, I wouldn't bother to write books like this because I would think it was hopeless. The situation was hopeless. Um, I, I don't think it's fruitful to try to change people. I think what is fruitful is to have conversations with them if they're open to having conversations. Now, there's some people who won't, and then I withdraw. But no matter how different a person's values and beliefs are from mine, I, I really do try to have conversations. My interactions on social media, I do that a lot. And so to have a conversation, you can't demand that a person has a different point of view. 
what you can do is to be curious about why they have the point of view they have, because everyone has reasons for what the beliefs they have and the values they have. You know, your father went through unimaginable traumas. Um, And of course, those forces made him what he is. Maybe he has the space in himself to modify his views. Maybe he, he doesn't, but we can't blame him for, for not being able to. So I think we need to look more to the future and, and look to the young people. You know, um, now, in my view, there are several factors we need to, as I put it in the subtitle of the book, resist dehumanization. And one is to understand we're all vulnerable to it. Um, That is, there are psychological weaknesses in all of us that allow people in positions of authority, political authority or religious authority or scientific authority, to to manipulate us and and to to get us to think about others in this sort of way. And to, to sort of override what I believe is our natural tendency to think of all others as the same kind as us, as human beings. You know, we're highly social animals. This is built into us. You look into another person's face and automatically you see human. So it takes a lot of pressure to override that. But, but propagandists are often very skilled at using techniques. Uh, um, to to do that in the book and in other of my my writings and talks I've given, I talk a lot about this psychoanalyst Roger Monikarl who went to Germany in 1932 and listened to Hitler and Goebbels and sort of extracted a formula of of political persuasion on that basis, which he published in 1941. I think it's utterly brilliant and and really really helps us see what what these people do. But for the moment, I'm not concentrating. For the moment, I'm concentrating at us. So self-knowledge really helps. And um, part of that self-knowledge is understanding what it is in us that is receptive to that sort of propaganda. And part of it is, is acknowledging that we're all capable of it. Um, because the tendency, of course, is to do the opposite. The tendency, like people would say, well, if I were living in Germany in 1938, I wouldn't. Yeah, sure. Um, that's, that's very few people <laughs> are capable of that. Um, that's very, very important. And part of the importance, and a lot of people get upset when I say this, is to understand that there aren't any monsters. Monsters are fictional. Stalin was not a monster. He was a human being who did terrible things. Hitler wasn't a monster. Goebbels wasn't a monster. They're all human beings. And that's very important because our attitude towards them should be to look in the mirror that they hold up to us what we're capable of. Okay, so that's a big part, the self-knowledge bit. And a kind of humility, a kind of acceptance of what the terrible things that we're capable of just as human beings when placed in certain situations. Another is a proper understanding of history. Nations are born in violence. That's how it is. And everyone in the world has, in, has been unjust to others and has blood on their hands. 
I, th I think it's very important for all nations to hang out their dirty laundry and to, to teach history to young people in a way that doesn't minimize this. And for the simple, well, one reason is truth is important. But another reason is, if you recognize that we, whoever we is, have done it in the past, you recognize we're capable of doing it again. And, and that, that encourages a kind of vigilance, right? We mustn't let it happen again. But just saying, oh, we can't let it happen again, that's, those are empty words. <laughs> Unless we take the steps, we acquire the knowledge, we implement the educational policies that are likely to minimize the likelihood. That's all inside, but there's also outside. And that's having um, institutions that protect us as much as any institution can, because any institution can be subverted. You know, right now in the United States, we have the Constitution. Yeah, right. The, the Weimar people fought that too. Uh, uh, what's, what's been created can be destroyed. But we need to do our best to support that, to support uh, um, uh, an independent press and, and to call out those who use dehumanizing rhetoric to try and get us to think of others as less than human. I think that's the best we can do, all those things. But here's the problem. There are two problems. One is the dehumanizers have the best stories. Fear motivates very, very powerfully. Um, so it's an unequal contest. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is that there, dehumanization happens because there are people in high places that want it to happen, that want us to think of them, whoever they are, as subhuman, you know, creatures that need to be destroyed or need to be constrained. So those in power very often don't have the sort of investment in constraining this process that, that we would like. One of the things that you bring, David, in the book, which I, I would love if you can um, help us to understand better, is something that also another scholar that I interviewed on this podcast, um, Orit Kamir, in her book on the, how we are using shaming on the internet. And there is something in the internet, on the virtual world, that prevents us to deal with the face of the other. Right? Yeah. And we can write whatever we want. And it leads to, an, lead to another thing that you mentioned in the book is that sometimes we, and now I do the we with quotation, um, like the good people, yeah. we also use the same rhetoric when we speak about the other side. So you, today you can see it like people who will not want to speak and to meet and to try to understand people who, let's say, support the president uh, in, in the United States. Yeah. Um, and But in a way, we're doing the same thing, right? I mean, so... Yeah. Can, can you say more about that, please, and yeah, about the so, virtual world? So dehumanization, all right, so let me, let me start in a, a different place that, please. Um, that I alluded to earlier. 
human beings, I think, um, well, it's not I think, everyone knows. Human beings are highly, highly social animals. We're the most social animal. I mean, you have to look at creatures like ants and bees to find creatures as social as we are. Uh, our very existence depends on cooperation. Any of us dropped into the wilderness is just not going to do very well. Um, now, any social animal, not just us, they have to have very strong inhibitions against doing serious harm to other members of their community. For obvious reasons, you can't maintain a cooperative social way of life if you're ripping each other's throats out. So human beings being highly social have to have very, very strong inhibitions against, uh, against violence. But we're also very clever. And we, we recognize that it can be advantageous to one group to do terrible things to another group, to, you know, to steal their resources, to create Lebensraum, to enslave them and whatever. And so over time, um, human beings develop various ways of disabling these inhibitions, cultural ways. Dehumanization is one. It's not the only way. There, there are a number of others. So I don't think dehumanization is necessary for atrocity, but it sure helps. Um, it's, it's very effective. Now, um, I forgot where we started. What, what did you ask me? We, we started with the virtual world and what's happened today because you don't see oh, yes. the other face. Okay. Okay. And also how what we call maybe people who see themselves more liberal Yes, but in a okay. way, they're using the same method I'm towards with people. I'm with you. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, so what we, we can ask ourselves, why does dehumanization work? And it works because it creates a kind of distance from others. Here we could call it moral distance, but the same thing occurs with, say, uh, uh, weapons, long-range weapons. Uh, you know, in the 14th century, when the English invented the longbow, which allowed them to kill the French at very great distance, that was a very important innovation. And, and the, this creation of physical distance through weapons is important because the sight of the human face, as I mentioned before, is a trigger. I seeing human and closing down on on these violent impulses from, you know, there's some people who don't care, but that's a minority of people. So that's why it's very, very difficult in combat uh, to kill others close up. To look in someone's eyes and stick a knife into their guts is unbelievably difficult and, and destroys people psychologically. They're haunted a lifetime. You know, they keep seeing those eyes. Um, so what, what, what happens on the internet is we're deprived of those cues, those cues of humanness, right? Like you and I are looking into each other's eyes. Uh, certain kinds of hostility would be much more difficult in this situation than if we weren't seeing each other. Right. Um, and of course, we know, I mean, even when we're seeing each other on the internet, we know we're not in physical proximity. You're not really there in the room. I mean, it helps that 
we see each other, but we both know you're not really there in, in the room. So on, on a kind of gut level, the other person is less real, right? And, and so it's, it's much easier for people to unleash some of their worst impulses. There are other reasons as well. I mean, the subtleties of communication. Um, I mean, you, you are, and the same thing is going with both of us. There's kind of a dance going on and there's a kind of music to our speech. And that's all lost in, in, in digital, most digital communication, right? So our interpretation of the other is, is, is deeply impoverished, right? So we have that. And then we have what's going on in American politics and politics elsewhere, for that matter. It's you know, part of the rebirth of fascism, in my view, in the world, of the essentialization of those whom we disagree with, right? Now, in effect, think back to my conception of race. In effect, people on the left and people on the right in the United States are on their way to racializing each other. They see each other as fundamentally different. This difference is inherited, and the other is always inferior, right? Now, with that kind of um, framing, conversation is impossible, right? Um, I mean, even if it wasn't framed, like, I don't frame it that way. I'll I'll talk to people not only on conservatives, people on the extreme right. I'll I'll talk to neo Nazis, uh, and I'm curious about their views and why they have them, and I'll explain to them why I think they're mistaken and so on. And you know, maybe I plant a little doubt in their minds, even if they don't acknowledge that to my face. But that doesn't happen a lot, and it's becoming more and more difficult to happen. And one reason why it becomes more difficult to happen is the stakes are getting higher and higher, right? As, as polarization increases, as violence increases, as terror increases, you know, for people like me, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of this nation slipping into fascism. Uh, and people on the right are terrified of people like me, right? Yeah. They're terrified of Black Lives Matter and and you know movements that I'm sympathetic to. Yeah, yes, David. I think that you touch here a subject that um, when I'm thinking about the closure of this dialogue, but I think you touch here something so fascinating, and it it was walking with me when I was reading the book. Um, again, from my experience as a peace activist, but also as a soldier, hmm. um, one of the challenges is the post-trauma is a disorder, right? I mean, if in a way there is a psychological reason why we want to see our enemy as an inhuman. Sure. Because to shoot a human being will lead you to post-trauma by definition for Absolutely. the rest of your life, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and um, to see the enemy as a terrorist, to call them names, titles, helps. Yeah, and terrorism is like a modern version of demon. Exactly, for sure, for sure, for sure. I'm thinking, David, I, I want to bring here a beautiful Jewish text. And the Jewish text says that even when, that according to the Jewish uh, biblical law, even when you need to kill a murderer, 
and you hang them on the tree. You are not allowed to leave the body even for one full night. Hmm. And the explanation is that as if there are twins, brothers, one become a terrorist and one become the king. Mm-hmm. And one day you needed to kill the terrorist. However, everyone who is seeing the body of the terrorist, they see that king is hanged. Yeah. Which means that in a way ah, you are yeah. right? in a way you are not allowed to do it. Yeah. However, and this is where I love in the book because you really touch every aspect of the sensitivity. It's hard to do that. And I think that what you just said about America, in a way, and America is an example for other places, is that the stake became to higher and higher. Because today to demand and again, I'm not an American, I'm not white, so I, you know, I'm from the Middle East. Yeah. But to demand someone who got hurt from white people to see Trump supporters, let's say, as full human being with all the complexity is in a way to force them to touch trauma, yes, their trauma, right? right? right, right it's right. like to ask a woman who was raped or a man who was raped to speak with a raper. Yeah. And, and I... I I would love if you can help us to understand. So do we still need not to dehumanize or is it okay sometimes to say it's my trauma and I need this tool? Uh, yeah. Um, hmm, that's, that's really hard. So I have a colleague who's a military ethicist, philosopher, and she talks about this problem in war. And what she argues is that there are different kinds of dehumanization, some of which are more toxic than others. So the the idea that the enemy is a target is less dangerous than the enemy is a monster or a beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't know if she says this, but I think there's a case to be made there because seeing the enemy as a monster or a beast motivates violence. We're seeing the enemy as a target simply allows it. But even in cases in war where the enemy is dehumanized, which is extraordinarily common because killing people damages the killer, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, yeah. And that's not acknowledged because if people realize that, they wouldn't want to go to war, right? <laughs> There's a lot of bullshit around, uh, around war. Um, and it catches up with people. Right, so even if in combat they they manage to think of the other as subhuman, so as not to be traumatized by the act of killing, or even if they're they're not killing themselves, they're participating in a killing operation. Um, once it's over, it's very hard to sustain. And that's why, you know, so many soldiers are, are psychiatric casualties, right? They drink themselves to death. They commit suicide. And that goes way, that goes back thousands of years. It's not just because of modern sensitivities. It's, it's because I think that we are built not to do that. And people get us to do that. They get us to override our tendencies. And that, that harms us. Um, so, uh, gosh, 
I mean, there there's a sense in which let's let's take the 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 uh, wartime situation and distinguish it from other situations. It there's a sense in which soldiers need something like that in order to do their job. It would just be, except for the four percent who are psychopaths and don't care and enjoy harming others. They need something to get them through the night. Um, if it's not dehumanization, it's going to be something else. It's going to be drugs or alcohol. You know, the the the, the Nazi and the, the Nazi Einsatzgruppen who were shooting Jews in Eastern Europe, they were like drunk all the time. They needed something to, to dull that sensibility. But of course, that's not sufficient. <laughs> you know, you get drunk, but you come out of it and and you realize what you've done. And this is something I don't think we appreciate about war. We don't appreciate the, the damage that's done to our soldiers. Um, and, it, and of course, it's not made public very readily um, for obvious political reasons. Of course, yeah. You know, um, one of my teachers, he's, um, um, both of them are the ones who wrote the ethical um, uh, the ethical law for the Israeli soldiers, and they demand the officers um, to look on each, what again, quotation, enemy as a full human being. Mm. Um, and it's, but they are aware that they are price. There is price for that because from the moment that the soldier know that the other side is still a full human being, mm. and there, it's really hard to shoot. And in a way, you can say brilliant. In yeah. a way, it's complicated, right? Mm. And and uh, I know I said it's the last question, but I must ask you one more question. Okay. And um, and you didn't touch it, I think, in the book, but um, it's something that, as a philosopher, I would love if you can think with me, help me to understand. Um, I want to know about the connection between um, dehumanization and the opposite, to look on each human being as a full human being, Mm-hmm. and nonviolence action. And I want to bring us to a moment in history to exchange letters between Martin Buber and Mahatma Gandhi, how to react to the Nazis. And mm-hmm. we don't, it was before anyone knew about Auschwitz, okay? So it was yeah, not yeah. there, mm-hmm. but it was before that. And Mahatma Gandhi suggested that the Jews in Europe will do nonviolence action. And Martin Buber I, I interpreted him, but he said it will not work with the Nazis to do un, uh, like um, to do nonviolence action because they don't even see us as human beings. Mm. So it will not work. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, so I wonder if you see connection between the need to use violence and or nonviolence action with dehumanization or not. Yeah. Well, nonviolent action can work in a couple of different ways. Um, so there, there's a story um, of a, there was a march in the South and uh, some police officers, it was a civil rights thing. Some police officers, of course, started beating the, the protesters savagely. And there was a cameraman there and he intervened. He started to intervene to prevent them. And Martin Luther King, who was there, said, no, don't do that. And the reason was, Though, though, when the rest of the country 
saw the brutality being handed out to black people in the South, it elicited their sympathies, right? It didn't, you know, nonviolent action wouldn't have done anything to discourage the, the racist police that were, were beating people and frankly would probably have liked to have killed them all. Um, but it did have an effect on others. Now, in, in, that wouldn't have worked in Germany <laughs> in that way. So it, it wouldn't have worked in Germany partially because of the skill of Nazi propaganda, partially because of the deeply ingrained anti-Semitism in the culture going back centuries. Um, so, uh, I mean, there, there was a view of Jews amongst many, and part, uh, I should add partially because of, of fear, right? So once, you know, after 1933, you had to be pretty courageous to, to oppose the regime. Um, and very few of us have that sort of courage. I certainly don't. I would have been a coward. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I think unless there's a basis for sympathy and, and seeing others as human is a very important component of that, then, then there, I think there's a real problem with nonviolent action. Um, there are situations where violence is required. Um, righteous violence is, is required. I, this is a moment though, to, for me to specify something, which, which is what human is, right? What do we mean by human? I think that human is basically a political concept. It's not a biological concept. It's not part of any biological um, vocabulary. And it means us. It means our kind. Right? So one is never in doubt about one's own humanness. The question is, are they human? And, and the, the moral task for us, I think, is to include everyone, maybe including non-human, it sounds like a paradox, non-human animals, as us. So it's an act of identification. Seeing others as human is an act of identification. And when there are forces preventing that, like in Nazi Germany, um, then it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to cultivate it. So the trick is doing this before things get that bad, right? <laughs> doing that in 1925 instead of 1935. Yes, yes. And in, in a way, maybe um, to humanize and to work towards education, it's, a, it's more a verb there a noun because... It's something that you need to do constantly. Yeah, we're humaning. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. David, the writer of on, on Inhumanity, thank you so much for being here oh, with us. Thank you. That was just a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much.